0: Yo, what's up, everybody? Um, it's another episode of Real Sankara Hours. Today is February 10th, 2021. Um, be sure to follow us at Sankara Hours on Twitter. We're, we are your favorite um, black Marxist political podcast. Um, again, follow us at Sankara Hours on Twitter to keep up to date with what we're doing. Um, and also, uh support us on patreon patreon.com slash real Car hours again patreon.com slash real Car hours yeah we got a bunch of stuff to talk about so yeah we'll get right into it my name is adam hudson follow me at adam hudson 5 on twitter
1: and this is peter m gun follow me at m peter and also uh happy late birthday to me yeah because uh, my birthday was yesterday uh same birthday as Michael B. Jordan and the greatest president in history, william Henry Harrison. that's a joke because he was only president for four months oh that's why he's the greatest yep greatest pres- yeah, so happy he caught he caught, he caught ammonia while, at his inauguration
0: speech. oh shit, also oh, yeah. that's how he died okay i knew yeah. I knew he didn't live for long i just i forgot how he died um uh, yep so uh anyway so yeah we're we're going to be talking about um the african continental free trade uh area that was um recently basically signed into agreement then we're going to be talking about um there's a split within black lives matter uh, a real like kind of like serious split that i think uh, i definitely think it's just worth talking about um just in general and then also uh before we recorded this episode i was um well i virtually attended a uh, school board meeting um for this ethnic studies campaign i've been i've been involved in so i left a public comment and um in light of that yeah i'm kind of in a mood to talk about um base i guess the term this term why, why the odyssey sucks yeah that and also like i mean the hip term that people use now decolonizing um, it gets overused but like uh yeah like basically getting rid of eurocentrism in in school curriculum and why it's important in light of this yeah this uh story that happened um i think it, it was at a massachusetts uh school district but anyway yeah let's get into the uh, um the afcfta or the african continental free trade area that was um yeah f- officially launched um at the beginning of this year january 1st so um yeah actually let me what i'll do is i'll just contextualize it just a little bit just just to kind of give us some ground and then we can just go and then we'll just comment on it um but basically um african heads of state like agreed to establish a continental free trade area um in 2012 and they started negotiations in 2015 um then you know we all know the pandemic happened but that kind of you know added some extra urgency so once 2021 started so like january 1st 2021 um basically the african countries officially began trading under this new continent continent-wide free trade area um and the the pandemic caused some delays but they finally got to it so um basically like it it's essentially like a single market for the entire african continent and basically to bo- it's basically to boost trade within the co- continent uh among african countries because um a, a lot of african countries like Trade individually, and they usually trade with countries outside of Africa. Yeah, per- yeah, a lot of bilateral mm-hmm. agreements, right,
1: with the West or China. Exactly,
0: yeah, and so like post independence, um, like African countries have still like maintained their neo-colonial ties. Actually, like let me let me mention this because I think this will be important. Um, like when the like right around like post independence, there was t- two sort of camps, to well two sort of like camps ha- who had like different ideas of what like a, what would become the African Union, what it would look like, like some sort of like United Africa. Um, the Monrovia group favored keeping um, maintaining the borders that were already drawn up by the Europeans uh, during th- in, during the Berlin Conference in the eighteen eighties and so they basically just favored maintaining those borders but just giving each country uh sovereignty and just basically respecting each country's sovereignty whereas the Casablanca group and they're they're the more radical ones so like Kwame Nkrumah and Amusek like they were in that camp and they were in terms of their politics they were a lot more uh socialist leaning so the Casablanca group wanted pure continental unity and to eventually, like, do away with, um, do away with or transcend those European imposed borders. But the Monrovia group won out, so basically those borders were intact, but just with giving each state its own uh, sovereignty. But that still maintained the neo-colonial ties between Africa and the West, particularly Britain and France. And so you can definitely see that when it comes to trade relations so the reason why i mention that is because uh having um in, intra-continental um trade the idea behind this is to basically collectively boost the economies of all african countries and make it so that africa as a continent as an, is like a self self-reliant economic block rather than one that's dependent on on the west so um this is yeah, that's sort of that's kind of like the impetus behind um creating a single continental market for goods and services, yeah, uh, the
1: largest single market, actually, yeah, exactly I think is the way um it's been it's been uh advertised,
0: yeah, and uh one important thing, one important part of it is supposed to um remove tariffs on ninety percent of goods um and that's supposed to be phased out, I think like so I wrote it down, like it's supposed to be um phased out over five years for more advanced economies and 10 years for less developed economies so it's not like an immediate you know eliminating tariffs it's it's sort of phased out so um because yeah yeah go ahead
1: well i want i want to say because this you know this is this is a little i don't say tricky but it's complex in the sense that Mm -hmm sort of the neo there's the like the neoliberal free trade ideology yeah that uh that the IMF and World Bank and all those people support and you know they do support like the they they're signing off on the AFCFTA like they're not it's not done like against them right but it's it's all you know they so so like the idea that tariffs are automatically bad is that is like part of sort of the ideology? Yeah, that, I mean, I remember like basic, you know, and whenever Republicans are like, it's intro, it's basic econ 101, it's like, I took econ 101. They don't really explain that, but one of the things they drive home is that no country should ever, uh, like, you know, re- restrain any form of trade, uh, but tariffs are useful for developing economies. so that they don't get flooded with imports, um, so that they can build up their own industry, and then be able to export, and then, you know, have self-sufficiency as their own economy. But this, uh, you know, the, like, what they're going for is something closer, like, the AFCFTA is, I don't it's funny, because I'm sure like, Chavez uh, in Latin America, like, drew a lot of inspiration from pan-Africanism um but that you know this is this it's kind of the same thing uh he was trying to do back in the early 2000s which is that like basically yeah create sort of more continental integration such that to break the neo-colonial ties so in that sense it is good because yeah that that you know but free trade is not like the magic bullet necessarily but we can get into that a little more yeah
0: yeah and i'm glad you mentioned that yeah cuz um, cuz uh, even Kwame Nkrumah like leaders like Kwame Nkrumah like they were pushing for um like in terms of like what pan-africanism actually looks like like economic integration is is part of it um and so like this you know and, and i think some of the people who have been talking about CF AFCFTA. The acronym is so tricky. AFCFTA. Uh, I-, I think part of this is like building off of um, the vision laid by leaders like Kwame Nkrumah, but I don't think as um, radical or revolutionary as he had. But I mean, it's it's uh, the idea of having e- economic greater economic integration among uh, African countries on the continent is like one one of the crucial steps in terms of like actual pan african uh unity um there there's still like a you know a bunch of different challenges like uh there's still a lot of um corruption among uh african leaders and many of whom who uh are do the do the bidding of the west like that's that's still an issue um and also
1: yeah uh, yeah and the corruption is usually like it's big it's like the west always likes to imagine that you know they're out there fighting corruption right in africa on but no the corruption is the neo-colonialism
0: right exactly yeah yeah and and again like that corruption was able to be maintained because of uh partially because of uh the monrovia group winning out in terms of maintaining those european imposed colonial borders um there's all like there's bureaucracy and red tape at borders and that's why i like removing the tariffs because like what's been preventing greater economic integration is is just um tariffs and bureaucracy between different like different countries that are right next to each other trading with each other so like for example um much of west africa is like under like the french zone and then other like english-speaking african countries are under like the sort of british zone so it creates this weird i think for i have to double check but i know like for a while like when it came to phone calls um like let's say if you're living in ghana and you want to make a a a phone call to i'm trying to remember i think it's it's either togo or benin that's like right next to ghana but but both those countries togo and benin are are like former French colonies, but if you want to make like a phone call to like let's say a country that's right next to you, like your phone call had to go through Europe so that European companies could profit from it, and then would it go back to to country that's right next to you. So it's it's shit like that that like, that those kinds of weird dynamics when it comes to red tape pre- prevents uh, greater economic integration among African countries in the African continent, which could put it in a position to actually because that's the thing like this kind of economic integration if if it goes the way like that like people like Kwame Nkrumah wanted uh would actually be a real threat to European neocolonial power so this is why like yeah like even you know if if somebody's international institutions are signing off on it that it it, it still raises some issues or not even is like just points of concern like things to look out for but um there's still like stuff um uh issues like poor infrastructure um yeah and businesses that like some c- domestic businesses that fear competition um but i mean yeah, yeah well ahead. yeah
1: because it's it you know in the general like i mean usually the agenda behind free trade is like so advanced economies can flood uh developing economies with you know their cheap uh, products and then that prevents those company those economies from developing and that is you know that is a point of concern for the more advanced economies in Africa like Nigeria and South Africa versus yeah. uh you know Niger let's say mm-hmm. but at the at the same time like um the there's just so like to even get to that point would be like a good would be a good thing because right now, like, all the sort of infrastructure is still uh, designed to get everything out of the continent. Like, even, you know, I, even, you know, you know, we, we won't, we're not, we're not going to go all of into uh, China's role Africa. I mean, they do build a lot of infrastructure, but the kind of integrated infrastructure, like, let's say, you know, like, in the US, like, the thing, one of the things that like supercharges the American economy is the highway system. Yeah. That allows goods to be transported across the continent very quickly. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that is that requires a continent wide development project, like such that, you know, there would be, yeah, like a maybe well not probably not through the Sahara, like the long way, but you know, the ability to take a road trip from uh, Cape Town to, you know, Cairo. Yeah. And that kind of, that kind of stuff. And to be clear, uh, like free trade is not going to build that. Yeah. But, Mm -hmm. but it can help, uh, sort of strengthen the connective tissue and get sort of everyone in the mindset that, you know, that, that it'll, that, that then leads to that kind of project. Of course it can also not do that, uh, because it can also be sort of turned into the, t- you know, more more of a NAFTA type situation. It could end. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that mm-hmm. kind of worries me. Yeah. And the, you know, with like the way the IMF or you know the way the World Bank right like approaches this stuff. Uh, you know, they are looking for like very specific numbers. Like I watched a couple of sort of seminars about this stuff. A lot of them with a lot of Europeans in them and it is very like data focused and it has nothing. They never really say anything about like, like what, like what actually has to be done to develop the continent. They just are like, because even their projection is like, it'll boost, uh, the like $400 billion in continent wide GDP or something. It's that that's their like projections and it'll, you know, eliminate extreme poverty, uh, which by like ten percent or something, which is not good enough, I mean to for uh, Africa to be like a you know real power on the world stage mm-hmm. but I think, but at the same time, like I don't think they would really want uh, like a Africa continent wide free trade agreement to happen in the first place. Except that, like, they kind of, they can't really argue against it, since free trade is the unquestionable dogma of neoliberal economics. Mm -hmm. So they, so, it. I mean, this is like, it's kind of a dialectical thing in that sense, where, like, it can, you know, it'll create its own antithesis and its own contradictions, and hopefully out of that will then come a new synthesis that is closer to the Pan-African vision because all the, all the heads of state that were sort of talking about this that I watched, they were all quoting Nkrumah like all day. Mm -hmm. So that's how, and that's how it's being sold to like the working masses. Uh, And I think that there is something to benefit from it, but I think what's important to understand is that the, yeah, the, tasks of like pan African continental development don't necessarily come from free trade, but that this agreement can help push Africa in that direction. Yeah,
0: right, exactly. And uh before I forget, so just to correct myself, uh Ghana borders Togo. Benin borders Nigeria. Togo and Benin are like they're like they're very if you look at them out, they're very like they're very thin countries. So Togo's the one that borders yeah. Ghana. Benin borders nigeria and then uh togo borders ghana to the east to ghana's west is ivory coast and both ivory coast and togo are french-speaking countries and ghana is english-speaking so you see like this is where this, this and i mentioned it because like this is how like africa just got carved up like you have two c- countries that are right next to each other uh but they speak the languages of their former call like in terms of the national languages i mean these people still speak like other you know different ethnic languages but uh um yeah, the language of business right yeah the language of business trade is like you know usually like english or uh or, or french and um it it does create this situation where where like two countries that are right right next to each other are speaking different languages the languages that were that were imposed on them by colonization and so you know th- that's one thing about like strengthening um trade between the african countries because it, it can at least like build um you know even uh just greater cohesion there we go cohesion and integration uh, among the countries and um but yeah like one one of my concerns is that um okay like you, you have the countries trade with each other like more often you, like you loosen those the, the tariffs at least but that doesn't um immediately remove the um neo-colonial ties that Africa still has with Europe and especially when it comes to um it, it, like economically and i think that's that's the main thing that uh concerns me because um you know as is when i was doing some reading on this like one of the main problems still in africa is uh infrastructure and so you know like the thing with the united states like every other country usually when before they start trading with other countries like they build their own infrastructure domestically uh, by themselves like internally and then they start doing it with the united states early american history like it's funny that like america talks all this stuff about free trade and trade liberalization but 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 in america's early history the united states was not about free trade at all the united states was super protectionist and you know who built the infrastructure enslaved africans like it wasn't just the picking the cotton but all the infrastructure that was built in the united states was in large part due to slave labor so the infrastructure, like roads and th- things like that yeah railroads yeah.
1: famously yeah yeah
0: yeah um and so like building that infrastructure domestically gave the united states its own economic power that it got to a certain level that it can be it could start like expanding markets and that's what led to uh imperialism so um and, and i think like that's another concern i have that if africa is not given the chance to develop its own infrastructure um to a level that it can you know be uh an economic block that's equivalent to any other economic block then i think africa is still going to be more vulnerable to um uh people who wish to exploit africa for its resources especially 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 the west and yeah like i mean yeah china is there too but um just to you know make things clear like in terms of the level of colonization and damage uh europe far yeah it's not even close. right yeah you're far surpasses china but the point is that like it's just you know um especially peter like you were talking about like roads like you know uh there was one person who had an idea for like a cape to cairo cape Town to cairo uh railroad and it was fucking cecil Rhodes, who was an imperialist so uh it'd be cool to have like a you know let's say a high speed rail that goes from cairo to cape town but uh instead of it being built like another Cecil Rhodes it should be built by uh Africans domestically um because the the reason because Cecil Rhodes wanted to build the railway for his own imperial interest in service of Britain it wasn't in Africa's interest yeah
1: I there's a there's a good meme that is like uh is you know the thing where it's like uh you know the the meme format that's like oh well, can we go to McDonald's mom we have we have food at home and then it's like the food at home and it's like actually absolutely terrible and it's like that it's like oh you know actually colonialists build built railroads and then it's like the railroads they built and it's just a picture of like a 10 long track that goes directly from the mine to the port right and and the thing about you you know not to big up the United States. But, it you know, back in the day when there was like sort of a national vision of economic development and it, that and that level of infrastructure is one of the reasons that the United States was well positioned to become the global hegemon. It is like a lot of that stuff was not just um, like the Eisenhower interstate system and all that stuff. It was beyond just the immediate needs of the bourgeoisie and the capitalists, because yeah, that back when like railroads were being all privately financed, it was it di- it didn't create the actual sort of integrative tissue. That's something that has to be a planned development. Yeah, and and that's the thing that can connect anywhere, every, everyone, so anyone can sell anything anywhere, and that is good. And but yeah it's not good it has to be done on like at a continent wide level
0: mm-hmm. um anyway yeah uh i i think we're like twenty four minutes in so i think we should just uh, we we can switch gears but um yeah that's we want to talk about the african continental free trade area because um yeah. it's it's a it's an important story the yeah. next one is uh <clears throat> so yeah there was a split um black lives matter inland empire um i'm reading from left out mag announced its departure from the black lives matter global network highlighting several grievances and perhaps calling attention to the need for movement leaders and members of movement organizations to have great to have broader conversations of transparency collective organizing and accountability um so yeah like they they uh actually let me so they they talk about a number of things but i want to Read um, oh, let me read these three paragraphs um so uh, 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 where's the part uh, hold on i'm 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 coming through this
1: uh i'll I'll vamp yeah um, go ahead. because because this is not i mean this this is not like only in the inland Empire because uh in Portland or in Portland, Maine, there was like a similar split and I didn't follow it super closely, but I know, I know that like the black lives matter Portland, uh, chapter sort of split. And then the Facebook group changed its name to like, it's something like black power in Maine. And I think a big part of it was basically like, uh, You know, feeling restrained and also feeling like uh, that sort of the like because the thing is that when BLM started, it was like, oh, this is a leaderless movement uh, because because they didn't want, you know, people were still sort of going off the Occupy mode because that was basically the only form of organizing that had sort of like gotten any gotten any juice. And the idea that like, oh, well you didn't want anyone that could be assassinated, which, you know, fair enough. But sort of, it did eventually turn into like a formalized structure with, a, and Black Lives Matter became like an actual organization, I guess, five hundred one C three, and then sort of had formal chapters, and you know, but that doesn't mean that like that specific organization like has a monopoly on the movement.
0: Yeah. So okay. So here's the. Um... Here are the three paragraphs I want to read um, that I think sum, sum up where they're at, or sum up the whole point in, like, why they did what they did. So, the use of the BLM, which we believe was intended to unify our struggle, has been commodified and debased. It is now being used to sell products, acquire book deals, TV deals, and speaking engagements. Excuse me. We have no interest in these pursuits, and we are opposed to the movement. opposed to the movement to substitute... Black capitalism for white capitalism. It has become clear that the global network and certain figures have platformed our struggles with the sole purpose of exploiting our labor. Furthermore, the issue of greatest concern for us is the relationship between the global network and the Democratic Party. This is hypocritical at best, as the Democratic Party has historically rejected and ignored BLM's demands and has made it clear that they are pro-police, pro-prison, and committed to capitalism from obama's support of police and its double cross of erica garner to top cop kamala harris's denial of justice for matrice richardson even going back to the 1994 crime bill authored by joe biden along with the prisoner litigation reform act that stripped basic human rights from countless black people the democratic party has literally created the conditions that led to the formation of this movement Even now, the Democratic Party continues to support imperialism, killing African heads of state, bombing Somalia, abusing immigrants, including those of the black diaspora, and spreading the U.S. military throughout black and brown countries around the world. This is a party that is a threat both here and internationally. To ally with them is to ally against ourselves. This is the third paragraph that I think uh, they call out one of the leaders. Uh, the BLM 10 statement calls out the lack of financial tr- transparency and power moves by Patrice Cullors and others. The actions demonstrated by the Global Network have provided proof that the Global Network is essentially a steering action committee in the best interests of various fa- frac- factions within the Democratic Party. Additionally, the creation of the Black Lives Matter Political Action Committee is a violation of our collective agreement. This agreement was composed of two rules. 1. We do not work with police. 2. We do not endorse politicians. We had hoped that those rules would protect our struggle from being corrupted by the nonprofit sector or absorbed into the Democratic Party. However, it now appears that the same fate that many activist groups before us fell victim it uh to is the same fate that the blm global network are destined to face they have not only aligned with the political party they've used the finances they acquired from a massive uprising during a a global pandemic to create the aforementioned blm uh pack so that was yeah that was pretty um but actually you know it um i i do remember something I, i said uh in one of our earlier episodes i think last year that black politics is dead <laughs> and m- what i was saying is that a lot of black political energy gets sucked into the democratic party uh academia uh corporate media and the non-profit sector and when it comes to like what i when i when i was saying black politics i was talking about like um independent black political power um there are important like black led organizations that are doing very important work, but um a lot like they they lack um uh real like power um economically yeah. and politically to uh achieve the demands that uh they want and that black people collectively need so and I think like what this letter shows is that A lot of, like, Black Lives Matter, I think, is a case study um, of how, like, black grassroots political movements get easily sucked into the the mainstream, like, the mainstream political system. So, uh, and because, yeah, like, I think it shows an important split between um, on-the-ground black grassroots activists whose politics are are pretty radical in terms of, like, wanting real fundamental change, like, there are those people who are doing that important work on the ground versus people who are using the black lives matter logo and slogan but they're they're using it to like yeah like get book deals speaking engagements tv deals
1: and just just circulate all that all that white liberal money around because it's got to move right
0: exactly yeah it's, <laughs> it's basically like you know uh, a form of um kind of grifting and also to get basically um it's another form of a liberal representation politics, like using the black lives yeah. matter logo as another form of a seat at the table representation yeah. politics. Yeah.
1: I think, yeah, I, the, the fact that you brought up that they were going to form a pack is, is very interesting because it is like, yeah, Democrats always love to act like the highest form of serious political organizing is, uh, you know, electoralism and, Uh, you know, basically election campaigns and their instincts are correct of like, there's no need to endorse politicians because once you know what you want and you're clear about that, like every politician is an obstacle. You're, there's someone to be negotiated with and endorsing anyone is only just going to demobilize you. It doesn't matter how, it doesn't matter how good the speeches are or how, you know, how smart the plans are Or um, even how sincere they are in their own hearts. Once you're in the system, like, you are beholden to, you know, interests that are much bigger than any uh, (laughs) black radical political organization uh, at this current time, at least. And so endorsing them, it doesn't give you anything. It does like, the... But what it does do is it provides a place for people, rich people to park money that then lets you that, you know, because, yeah, you know, not a whole lot of money in the left, but uh so I understand why people are always cash strapped. But th- the thing about PACs is that they don't. Yeah, you can't like like you like sw- switching to electoral politics is just. It 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 yeah, it destroys any movement because it's like you don't it doesn't matter who the mayor is or who's on city council when you need to cut the police budget in half. Like, yeah, there are some people who are better, who are more amenable to it than others. But every it doesn't matter if you get all of them who like are really convinced that um, that like that, that's that's what they need to do. Because like the you know, the Chamber of Commerce has other ideas, and they're gonna win out. Uh, now I think like forming a separate political party is uh, is you know certainly an avenue that that could be uh, explored. But yeah, especially in the two- party system, even if like you elect an independent or whatever, like uh, there's no, yeah, like endorsing politicians just it doesn't build doesn't build, your power in any way and that's like the whole point of political organizing is to build power so yeah i i can you know good on them for sort of recognizing that play for what it is and being like no we're not doing this
0: right yeah and and i I think like this is just really important because um i remember i was talking to a friend of mine about this who does um abolitionist work and she was saying um that like the movement has to be clear about what it really wants like does it really want like representation or does it want like something more radical and i think this this shows a real split in because black lives matter like um at this point is is become a slogan and not like a co- cohesive movement with like clear demands because people are like oh black lives matter this black lives matter that and like there's there's at this point like black lives matter as a slogan is hardly even accountable to the black community anymore it's it's been really far removed yeah yeah
1: yeah they painted it on that like dc street and i'm waiting for like this is grim but you know when is the first like police shooting going to happen on that street right yeah
0: yeah it's like another version of you know having an mlk boulevard in like the hood and it's like you have you know mlk boulevards in like some of the poorest sectors of black america so it's like oh cool like okay we got the. Little, MLK commemoration, but like the neighborhood is still impoverished. Um, but I, I, I think, like, yeah, like the, the, there is, um, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, like the, the slogans have kind of been used by anyone for any kind of agenda that they want. But I think, um, this shows an important, I think, uh, Split, which I think honestly is a good thing. I'm glad like that they're making it clear like yeah. where where, yeah. where they stand because, um, all all the energy that gets this yeah this is what I want to say all, all the energy that gets sucked into like electoral politics, especially electoral politics for the Democratic Party, and all the energy that gets sucked into like the massive nonprofit industrial complex, um, all that energy could be used to be building up and supporting. Um independent like black radical organizations, people who do important like prison and police abolition work um and also like i'm I'm gonna shout them out again the uh ujima people's party um it's a black working class led political party in Baltimore, and it's like and i and I think that those kinds of parties and organizations could use like more support like financial support uh manpower uh things of that nature but um when so much of the energy behind black lives matter is focused on liberal representation politics seat at the table politics um supporting the democratic party it yields no tan- tangible results for the black community because it's serving it's, ser- it's fundamentally serving a political machine that is against the interests of black people and, yeah. and it's also responsible for the impression and injustices inflicted um, against black people both domestically and internationally
1: yeah and I also want to say that like you know yeah doing the dem- be- democrat bullshit stuff that it's very easy like it's very very easy to get locked into the trap of like the most serious and important thing to do politically is uh, is support democrats because uh, democrats they like basically all they do is come up with excuses. I'm convinced that's all they do all day right. is come up with is come up with. Like I, what I find so funny, this is a bit of a side note, but what I I find so funny about like the Obama um, biogra- autobiography is that he's still trying to like convince the left about something like that. He's still trying to like make an argument to the left who have are who most people, most you know, radical lefties that he's trying to convince have already, like, given up on him and, you know, the whole fucking party. But what I really want to say is that doing that shit undermines your actual ability to organize in the communities that you're actually accountable to. Exactly. That's the thing. That's the thing, is that, like, when you're in the Inland Empire, you know, like, I assume that's, like, Sacramento or something. It's
0: further, um, Inland Empire oh, right, is, yeah, is that's... Yeah. Southern California, but, like to uh the east. yeah just like riverside yeah 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 around there
1: right okay yeah yeah i mean the river you know riverside's got plenty of problems right um if you're trying to make a like if you're trying to establish legitimacy in those working class communities you have to under they have those pe- the people who actually live there have to understand that that group is accountable to them first exactly and not and not these parties and that is actually ironically enough um how like like the reason there's a black lives matter movement in the first place is because of the people do like on the ground in ferguson actually Mm -hmm. working in their communities yeah like not as an attachment to the democratic party or just the broader liberal culture wars um that is so easy to get sucked into that was why there was actual militancy that had not the type had not been seen in decades, and if, they had to struggle against like all the legacy civil rights organizations that, you know, tried to move in and take it over, and uh, and now here we are again, you know. Yeah.
0: Um. And I I think yeah I just want I wanted to um, mention that, and then we can kind of segue into the other thing we wanted to talk about, but um I I think um yeah sort of the time we're in, especially with kamala harris as vice president and and joe biden as president um i I think like well it it still reminds me of that meeting that joe biden had with those civil (laughs) rights leaders and he was just saying like he's not going to do anything for black people in black Uh,
1: yeah and though and those are the people most heavily like bought in Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) and he and he and he told them to kiss his ass right
0: yeah and like they just like couldn't say anything Um, And even Black Lives Matter wasn't even invited to the table to have with (laughs) Uncle Joe, Um, which is, yeah, I mean, it's just like really what happened, I think, in 2020 is that Black Lives Matter and a lot of that organizing got used to just essentially elect Joe Biden. Um, But, you know, Joe Biden saying he's not going to do anything for black people. So that means like, okay, so you tried the whole like seat at the table representation. Joe Biden says, yeah, I'm not going to do shit. So then the, the, the real... What should have been focused on in the first place is building independent black political power and yeah like those those kinds of organizations are accountable to the community like that's how you build power to begin with is you build organizations that are accountable to the community first not to the democratic party but um yeah the black lives matter global network um they they're they're clearly much more attached to the mainstream political machine than they than they are to the black community. But again, like you know, uh, some of those people be like, "Well, I'm fighting for black people. I'm fighting for black people." Like, okay, well, what are the what are the results? Like, just more book deals, more TV deals, more representation. Like, yeah, we have all the representation, like in you know, black people on TV. Cool. Okay. Well, that's what's that gonna do? What how, like that's not going to prevent the yeah. next police shooting. That's not going to mitigate gentrification. It's not going to help build up black wealth. Like it's not gonna it's not gonna change anything that's fundamental. It's just gonna be more I said this again. I said I said this on, on my on my IG live. Um it's just gonna be like more that kind of representation is just more uh tokenism. It's more tokenization. So it's like, okay, they're gonna have like representation here, representation there, and like you know say shit like yeah it's you know america it was built by slaves and blah 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 like they're gonna speak in the feel your pain language like i hear you i see you um but it's all just to like uh like say like oh we're gradually moving toward racial progress we're gradually moving toward but like it never comes like there's the the, the liberation doesn't come but it's just like trying to give you this sense to give black people the sense of um it's like an illusion of progress when there's no it's, real progress at all.
1: Yeah, it's it's loosely with the football. And the thing is that, like, people aren't stupid. Right. Not as stupid as Democrat operators think that they are. And, like, mm-hmm. yeah, they can see through this stuff. And most most people understand it intuitively. They know the Democratic Party hasn't done anything for them. And so, it, it, like I said, you know, sort of the... M- even the more like the morality question or whatever aside of like working with the democratic party it's just it's not effective like right. in the sense in the sense of whatever you know the degree to which any group of people are be, you know becoming involved and politically motivated to take action like you have to understand what the obstacles are uh, and the democratic party is like the biggest obstacle of them all
0: and that we can segue into the next thing we want to talk about um because both uh peter and peter and i um we don't really care about the classics uh Mm -hmm. you know we don't really so there is i mean some of them are cool but like uh overrated yeah Yeah. so uh (laughs) so i think this was like late last year This, this story popped up and um I thought it'd be good to talk about it, but like yeah, like I said before, I'm involved in um, a campaign to get ethnic studies in my local K through twelve school district. So this 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 actually kind of ties into it because again, I I was at a uh, left a public comment at a school board meeting just before recording. So um, there's this Twitter handle called Disrupt Techs. And it's basically – it says it's a movement to rebuild the literary canon using an anti-bias, anti-racist, critical literacy lens. And um, yeah. so there is a tweet and someone said –
1: That's not even – they didn't even say decolonize. No. It's just an anti-racist uh, – Right. Lit- anti-racist canon.
0: So someone tweeted um, last June, be like Odysseus and embrace the long haul to liberation and then take the Odyssey out of your curriculum because it's trash – And then a teacher named uh, Heather Levine replied, Ha ha ha, very proud to say we got the odyssey removed from the curriculum this year. And so, yeah, Levine, she's an English teacher at uh, Lawrence High School in Massachusetts. And yeah,
1: Lawrence is like a pretty uh, industrial town like that. Like that is like a pretty that is a pretty working class town. Yeah. um, Just for the record. Yeah. That's where God smacks
0: from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh um so it got like some some criticism from people like who are all kind of like culture war types and some conservatives who are saying, "Oh my god, how dare you ban The Odyssey?" Like this is, you know, uh cancel culture, the left is out of control and um but it's like, you know, here's the thing like like curriculums change all the time, like they're subject to change. You know, these aren't like like canons that are handed from god like they're yeah
1: well well that's what they want you to think right exactly is, you know all, all the all the butts in the statues and it's i mean it, i guess it's kind of i actually had a not bad uh sort of ninth grade it was we did we had to do an introduction to the humanities course where we read the Odyssey, but we also read like the Epic of Gilgamesh, some stuff from like the Indus River Valley, and we even did uh, "Things Fall Apart" by Chinua Achebe. Uh, though we had to read Anthem, we had to read Ayn Rand for the summer leading into it, so <laughs> take that for what you will. But yeah, I mean, like the canon, like it, like on one level, it just sucks. Like this stuff is just boring. Uh, and it destroys, like, kids' desire to read because, actually, a lot of kids, even American kids in the 21st century do like to read. I mean, fucking Harry Potter. I mean, yes, read another book, but, like, it was like, yeah, kids, like, do like reading, and you want kids and teenagers to read while their minds are developing, Uh, and I just find so often, like, the way literature is taught... Is just it it like it is from a very and if you if you want to read sort of how how that has developed like especially in the context of English language literature uh, Terry Eagleton has stuff about like sort of the like literary theory but it is very much like this project of bourgeois moral education that like you have to read these books to become a better person right and if we make these people. We make these kids read these books in this specific way because that's the other thing. Like The thing that blows my mind now is I'm like an adult and can read whatever I want is that the way you're like not just – you don't just have to read the book and talk about it, but you're also taught how to interpret it, right? like the correct way to interpret the book. And it's just like – I don't know. I mean, look, I'm not like a – you know, not an educator, but I feel like it doesn't – at the end of the day – it doesn't matter if, you know, if people don't want to read the Odyssey, then don't teach the Odyssey. It's fucking boring. Like, it's, it's like, 17 pages of, like, oh, the gods this, balance is great, or whatever, and then there's, like, a battle scene. Then another 17 pages of shit you don't understand. And, like, it doesn't... I don't really understand why, like, why we have to put uh, kids through this stuff.
0: Yeah, and, like, uh, yeah, the, the, the things we call... I guess classics and canon uh, that we teach kids are overrated even a lot of english teachers don't like teaching some of that stuff but for me like the the issue it raises for me is um like beyond the whole anti-racist like terminology when it comes to critical literacy like what i'm more interested in and the reason why i'm involved in this ethnic studies campaign is um basically just to like get just to get rid of the whole like Eurocentric uh, framing of uh, teaching, because like especially in English, I mean, obviously, yeah, English is a European language, and this even kind of you know that can kind of get into the whole uh, how do you decolonize the English department and what it, what is you know liter what is what does literature mean like when there's so many different literary traditions that are around the world and that speak different languages and you know what happens like. When English becomes like the lingua franca that that can you know that a lot of these a lot of people speak because of just the legacy of British colonization, but that that's get that's getting kind of deeper into the weeds but um like when we think about like how white supremacy is maintained, it definitely is maintained in the school system, and there are certain um narratives and ways of thinking that are uh reproduced in education um that like the the way curriculums are set up can contribute to that so uh when we're looking at you know when it comes to history and english it still is taught from like a eurocentric you know framing of things um you know, and, and one way that, like, people try to correct it is, okay, we're going to do, like, you know, multiculturalism and diversity, but, you know, there still is, like, it still relies on the dominance of the European way of looking at the world, and the whole point of ethnic studies, like, the impetus behind it is to basically challenge that whole way of thinking in order to... Um, basically challenge racism and white supremacy and how they're uh, like how they're maintained so for example like okay um part of the reason like why uh uh you know we study european classics like the greeks and the romans and how great they are and da 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 like really what it is is like um the current like uh white western world and particularly like okay like the united states is basically um like uh another offshoot of european imperialism particularly britain right uh so the... it's it's yeah
1: yeah the the bastard son that ran away and then ended up being more powerful than the father, right
0: yeah and so like one way in which like you know the western imperialism a western way of thinking western imperial way of thinking is reproduced is like basically um uh building upon like uh this thing we call Western civilization. And that's supposed to be building off of like the ancient Greeks and the Romans. And even though like, let's say most of the white people who live in the United States, like probably can't trace their ancestry to the ancient Greeks or the ancient Romans. In fact, almost none of them. can. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But the, the whole idea is that like what we consider to be like the Western world and Western literature is building off of that, recorded history left behind by the ancient greeks and the ancient romans um but then it's like okay well what happens when like you have students from um who are not from what we call the quote unquote west right but what about like students of of african descent black students or students from latin america and some of them could be like you know they could be mixed with uh uh you know like because we know like latino is not a race so you have like different races of people coming from latin america but like yeah there's just people who uh, are indigenous or have may have indigenous ancestry or african ancestry from, from latin america and we have people from asia and the pacific islands and then also obviously uh indigenous people from the united states and other parts of the americas so it's like okay um you have all these uh, students in the school system and they're learning basically they're learning about like Western civilization really what they're getting is that like white people are superior to you because look at all that they've accomplished They've accomplished this and this and this and this look at the greatness of white white civilization, right? Um, but like okay, well, what about like uh, Black and indigenous students like what 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 is what is their history? What are they building off of? Right? because like the the thing is that like you know this whole teaching of Western civilization is basically like to you know maintain the myth of of white supremacy like that's that's one of the main points that's what the main function of it so um the 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 ethnic studies is basically to um ch- challenge that way of uh, teaching because like when you look at this month is black history month right and a lot of times when we talk about black history, it's always like uh we'll talk a little bit about slavery. Then you have like dr king and now you have obama and kamala harris and it's like okay everything is about like um what black people did like after slavery but really what it's saying is that like black people's only history is post-slavery right um yeah. and, and then it never talks about like because I, I wrote um an article about this that will be published soon like we don't talk about like how enslaved africans tried to preserve their african culture and what the end result was hence blues jazz like those are different music styles but if you look at particularly like the blues scale and the types of rhythms in jazz music they're still in there's they still have african origins so what's my why am i bringing this up what i'm saying is that like if you look at what we consider black culture and black music it's still in conversation with african music like indigenous african music it just you know when when enslaved africans were brought here the flavors got changed up a little bit but it's still like fundamentally the same type of food it's just a little different same with uh different types of black music throughout the diaspora in latin america things are different but there's a there's a african core that's still there that's the product of the fact that people enslaved africans were taken from africa and brought into different parts of the americas so what i'm saying is that like black history the the real way of looking at black history um is still building off of african history and african civilization both during slavery and post-slavery so when we think of like black history and black culture it cannot just be post-slavery it has to be what happened during slavery and also before slavery because there's a whole history of b- black history before slavery but one of the main um miss and i think this really gets to the core of like what we consider to be anti-black racism is that when the europeans came to africa to start kidnapping people and taking slaves and then later to colonize africa the, the thing they used to justify their uh colonization in the slave trade was to depict the entire african continent as having no history like a null site like no history um, no civilization to speak of like that was the way that they depicted Africa It's a little bit different than even how they depicted other colonial subjects because they still kind of like, you know, maybe admired their temples a little bit, but they still considered them inferior. But with Africans, they just depicted the entire continent as like this dark continent with no history and no civilization. That's worth speaking of, even though the opposite is true. Like there are... There is this um, British historian, British um, professor who pointed out that even in um, in West Africa, there are a lot of pre-slavery civilizations in West Africa in like the B like BC era. I forgot which year, but he was saying that like they were just as advanced as European civilizations. So at the same time, that like, you know, Homer was around and people were talking about like, how great European civilizations are. Africa had civilizations that were just equal of Europe. But we're not taught that why well the reason that the re- this is how it contributes to white supremacy is that when you remove that from the curriculum at a very early age and you just give black students like okay your entire history is um slavery and dr king and that's it really what you're telling black people is that like you're you're nothing you're not really a human being you're not building off of like an actual culture and tradition that extends before slavery which is the reality of black culture but what we're taught is completely different the narrative that we're taught is a narrative that was created and imposed by europeans which hence is what makes it racist and white supremacist so that's 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 my issue is the fact that like we're taught all like the greatness of white people but here's the thing we're never talked they we're, kids are never taught about like uh you know, how many white people supported fucking lynchings during during Jim Crow? Like, we're not taught, like, that ugly history. There is a study that was done, it was published in NPR, and it showed that um, when you teach the hard history of slavery in schools, there's a lot of backlash from white students. So, we're taught, like, the, you know, the greatness of, uh, um, you know, European civilization and all this, but, like, in a country that was built on slavery like the school system like here's the thing about school systems is like they they are highly politicized so when people are kind of critiquing this teacher for getting rid of the odyssey and you know calling it political correctness but like so much of school school is is political yeah yeah yeah, that's
1: what that's what like education is is. that's what it's in terms of history and literature especially like people like people are choosing which narratives they want to support their culture and it it's not that like it's edit their editorial decisions and they don't even necessarily have to be based on hard data though yeah you want it to be true but there's i mean if you think about all of the just absolute crap that like would get taught in school about like george washington and the cherry tree or whatever i mean so much shit was just absolutely just Mm -hmm. completely made up right so, you know, it's at that at that level, it's like, no, there's not even like anything. It's not like, oh, this is what happened. I mean, there's many different interpretations. And this is like the point is subjectivity is that like, you know, kids need kids need to have an understanding of mm-hmm. where they come from. And and like part of that is like, yeah, you don't want to just eat. Yeah. Your people just ate shit forever and never did anything. Um, and, but Mm -hmm. these people were great. Like, you know, cause I, cause I, on a, you know, I was kind of a nerd. I like, and I actually paid attention to history and I, I assume most kids didn't. So I don't actually know what the average kid learns in history. I took a, like I took AP US and we had like a pretty lefty teacher, but you know, we read invisible man. That's it. But like the school was 70% black and it's like, yeah, you should be able, you should just have like a black studies course you should just learn black history. That should be a year round thing. If your school is majority Mm -hmm. black, like that just makes sense, you know? And, and that's, you know, what the ethnic studies campaign is about. And I mean, it kind of reminds me of back in 2010 to 2012, when, uh, there's like in Tucson, I think there was, a there, like, there was like a, a Mexican American studies program that was like pretty popular. And it was, you know, it actually helped, like it helps, you know, uh, like how do we reach these kids? It's like by showing them what their actual fucking history is and showing that, yeah. them that it's something mm-hmm. to be proud of. Right. And then like all the fucking weirdo psycho Republicans that make up like the Arizona state legislature came down super hard on it. And they, I remember hilariously, you know, there was a list of like things you couldn't teach. And one of them was like, cause they were teaching the tempest by Shakespeare. Um, which is, you know, like, you know, like, yeah, some of the classics are good. Some of them suck. Uh, so, you know, there, there's a quote by uh, Luis Buñuel, who's a Mexican uh, filmmaker, and he says, uh, John Steinbeck is only famous because <laughs> of American guns. And that's the truth. Like, the shit that you, we are told is the great literature is because people with guns, that's what they were... The people yeah. with guns, that's what they were reading. And, but back to the back to the tempest uh, they were basically teaching it and analyzing it because it takes place in a colony there's like the character Caliban who is like this horrendous mm-hmm. colonial subject right and, but they you know it's like they put they basically the teachers were like analyzing the story from Caliban's point of view and they were like yeah you can teach the tempest but you can't <laughs> teach it that way and so that's how silly this stuff gets like the like yeah the you know the right is filled with classics nerds cuz most people are like okay that yeah that shit was it's kind of funny Soga parties are fun or whatever but like yeah it's boring who gives a shit um you know except for these people who actually read all that dumb shit and, um and, and and but then they're the ones who take yeah. over fucking school boards and so you know it, it it like you have to actually push back against this stuff and say no we're not destroying uh you know culture and minds by like reading something else like people you read whatever people can read whatever they want to read any culture can yeah read and, and, and the reason
0: why be. i brought up like the the particularly for africa and, and oh by the way like my school district the school district the school district where i live um is 95 percent non-white so and there's no ethnic studies program so it's like okay the school district is majority non-white it makes perfect sense to have a fucking ethnic studies program, um, but like the reason why I mentioned Africa and the dark continent because I've been thinking I've been thinking about this and I really think that the when people talk about anti-black racism as something specific, I think on a it really comes from that being taught that um, Africa as a continent is the dark continent with, you know, like no real history. Or civilization or real contribution to humanity that is equal to others and that contribute and even you can still see even the, in the freaking media about like how people talk about Africa like it's still from that lens like people still look at Africa from basically like everybody like the way away a lot of people look at Africa is like through a, a Eurocentric way of looking at things even black people and other non-white people are just you know they still have that mindset because Again, like when you live in a in the United States and in the West and those are the things you taught that you're taught, you, you absorb that way of thinking. Like you're absorbing the the lens and perspective of the colonizer. So the idea that Africa is a dark continent with no history and no civilization or contribution to humanity is worth speaking of, that is a Eurocentric colonial narrative. That that's what it is. And it's reproduced in the school system. And by emphasizing, like, you know, the classics and putting other civilizations aside, you're still perpetuating a colonial narrative. That's, that's just what the fuck it is. And, um, that's why, like, yeah, I, I try to educate people about, like, um, the African roots of black culture in the diaspora because, like, you know, the, 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 the predicament with us is that because slavery removed our immediate access to our indigenous culture, like, you know, language for one, um, Uh, traditional uh, uh, clothing and customs and things of that nature um uh like it's hard to trace like who we really are because yeah like it was ripped from us by force during slavery but um even if you read like you know like other uh slave narratives in history like there was culture that was still being preserved and produced on slave plantations and on slave ships and so that was the real genesis of what we consider today to be black culture in the united states or black culture in cuba or black culture in puerto rico like the synthesis of different african like ethnic groups coming together and forming their own unique african identity started during slavery on slave ships and plantations but it was a it was from the ingenuity of africans trying to humanize themselves and maintain their humanity like that that perspective needs to be taught in schools but it's not and the fact that it's not contributes to the same fucking problem that we're still dealing with uh today so what i'm trying to say is that like what we consider to be black culture and black history has to include the rest of the diaspora african diaspora and the african continent that's real black history in in his in the truest form that's what it is but the form that we're taught is again from a eurocentric colonial narrative and that narrative has to just be done away with it just it just has to and i think campaigns like ethnic studies and and pushes for black studies is a way to uh destroy that narrative because it's again it's 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 really it's not about like trying to retreat to some pre-slavery past but it's about like challenging that Eurocentric colonial narrative because that's not one is not true, and two it's not going to get us free. That's 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 just that's just a reality. um And so yeah, that's why I'm I'm I, I'm pretty vigilant about like trying to educate people about like the a a more comprehensive perspective on Black culture and Black history than just like the sort of watered down. Because honestly, like I'm getting fucking tired of the black history the commercialized black history ads that i'm seeing and shit like that like it's all about like uh black people suffering so that society can be better like what the fuck so it's like oh okay that's our whole history it's like we got our ass kicked but now (laughs) like everybody's happy because you got your ass kicked like that's like pretty much like our history is reduced to that or like you know people think uh every black person's like you know um like, a, ni- a 90s rap music, like, p- people still look at black men, it's like, R-.
1: Yeah, yeah, na- yeah. now they're, like, right. putting Biggie Smalls in uh, in Black History Month just so they don't right. have to actually like, read any like, books. Right, like, that's, like,
0: people are still thinking, like, oh, black people and their culture is nothing but, like, gangster rap and basketball and football. Like, that's, and that sounds glib, but honestly, like, I think there's a lot of people who think that, like, <laughs>
1: Oh, oh no! Like I would, I would hazard at probably fifty-five percent of white Americans think that's what it is, and that's even that's being conservative. It's probably close to like six, seventy percent of white Americans think yeah. that's all. Yeah, black and I, and
0: and you know, this is a Pan African Black focused podcast, so that we're focusing on. Well, it is also Black History Month, but I mean the same. I I think should be said for other cultures like Indigenous people, uh, uh peoples of the Asian continent because asia is a huge continent with very different cultures but um you know when it comes to ethnic studies that's that's the stuff that's uh being pushed one thing actually before i forget and before we wrap up i do want to mention this because i do think it's important like uh, in california one thing that's becoming contentious is um the inclusion of uh, arab studies in ethnic studies because once people start talk start talking about arab history and then it gets to the issue of uh palestine and palestine yeah hey, there's some um, <laughs> on the zionist side there's some blowback against it yeah. so that that's also another reason why again like I, I think ethnic studies um a push for that is important uh, but it also just shows like uh the challenges because when you start pushing for that kind of narrative um there's going to be blowback cuz there's going to be vested interest in maintaining the dominant narrative and so like yeah i don't like this whole uh, oh this is left wing cancel culture like well no it's it's about like it's really a question of freaking power cuz like the people who have the power in the guns they have the power to determine their own narrative and have people believe it even if it's not true but um that means people from the other side have to uh um fight fight back against that and yeah curriculum like They're free and open to change. This is pedagogy. It's you know, but yeah, like what we consider to be curriculum is determined by politics. Um, That's just reality, and uh, those kinds of politics are mediated, definitely through uh, school boards. Hence the school board meeting I was at. So, um, yeah, I'm glad I left my public comment. Uh, We'll see. We'll see how that goes. But um, actually, yeah. Well, we're yeah over an hour, and I think this is a good time to wrap up. Yeah, totally. Yeah, good place. To wrap um, up. Yeah. So we talked about the African Continental Free Trade Area, um, the split within within the Black Lives Matter movement, and uh, why. Um, uh, you know, you don't have to teach your kids the classics all the time. It's you know you can have them read other stuff of other cultures. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah i mean i like even now i'm still angry that there's so much like they're like the thing that bugs me is that like actually all the stuff is there mm-hmm. it isn't like oh uh oh well they didn't write anything like yeah oh well th- like the Zulu. i think i don't know some quote about like who is the tolstoy of the zulus like they had their their own they had all like a lot of that shit was just fucking wiped out mm. by the portuguese you know and then the rest of it was like yeah it's you know, or it's an oral tradition, which is not any less valid than a written tradition, right? Those are... It's also valid. And there's just so much other stuff that we could be learning instead of the same fucking boring shit that nobody even wants to read in the first place. So, you know, like, yeah. Like, well, also, yeah, speaking of oral traditions, of
0: wasn't, like, the Iliad... Like, a lot of, like, Greek... St- it's all by... Paul- yeah, yes, yeah. The Odyssey right, was, right. was
1: a sung poem, like... It was basically like uh, mm-hmm. stand-up comedy. Like, you know, Homer wasn't like some high art dude, some pretentious literary asshole. He was right. basically a troubadour. Just went around and be like, yo, you want to listen to this uh, 70-hour story about, uh, you know, some dude? And I guess they had nothing else to do yeah. back then. I mean, so there's they were like, yeah. sure. I and mean, then someone actually, eventually yeah, wrote if you it down.
0: Look at African, like, pre-slavery African culture. Like, a lot of stories are preserved through oral traditions and, uh, song and dance. And yeah, like there is writing, uh, in pre-slavery Africa, uh, look up Sibidi. Um, that's, there, there are ancient African writing systems. It exists. It's just the way, um, African societies have preserved history is, uh, compared to the West, like seemingly unorthodox, but like, yeah, different cultures preserve stories in different forms, like poems, music, song, dance, oral traditions. Um, writing is, and also like th- the whole idea of, um, uh, mass uh writing and literacy is, is fairly new like there are a lot of white people in europe who are illiterate as hell like the, reading was for like the fucking jesuits and priests and shit. yeah like, the average you know european and medieval europe they couldn't read and write so
1: <laughs> yeah yeah and also just uh you know it's hilarious that they want to be like oh yeah we learned like no actually europe was all shitting on on floors while it was the Islamic world that actually kept the tradition of the Greeks and Romans alive, and actually kept that knowledge mm-hmm. alive. And then, you know, after the Black Death, which I guess allowed Europe to get itself together, they had to go take it back from the Muslim world. And then they claimed, like, "Oh no, this was our us all along." Like, no, it wasn't. Right, Europe wasn't really even wasn't. a thing back
0: then. Um, so, anyway, like... yeah, that's a that's a it's a good place to wrap up. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, this is real Sankara hours. Follow us at Sankara hours on Twitter. Again, www.patreon.com slash real Sankara hours. Again, patreon.com slash real Sankara hours. Oh yeah. I mean, $5 a month gets you, um, bonus episodes, bonus content, but we also have a tier for, um, people who wish to support, um, either anywhere from a dollar a month to $4 a month. Um, it does not get you access to bonus episodes, but it does. It's just a right. Yeah, we'll it's just love you know, you you're, forever. you're 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 keeping this alive, and we appreciate your contribution. So yeah, anywhere from a dollar a month to four dollars a month, um, you're just you know a regular patron, and uh, you you're helping us to keep uh, keep keep the podcast going. Because um, yeah, the economy's still tough for everybody, so we recognize that. But $5 a month gets you bonus content. Um, And yeah, so anyway, time for us to sign out. Keep the faith. Peace, y'all. And stay dangerous.
1: All right.